the, the, the clattering of glasses in the background. Well, I'm just thrilled to have this panel here because starting with Hugo, who I first heard of because of your fame when I worked for Oxfam and you were already one of our trustees and we very much looked to Hugo for advice and guidance in the humanitarian world, to all of these wonderful friends who've uh, become friends many years ago or recently working in this area. I myself, as Hugo mentioned, started off studying and working as a practitioner, a policy advisor, an activist in peace, so coming from the other side of it. And it was literally when I arrived at the end of 1999, flushed with my PhD from that place we won't mention, believing I had all the answers of how to go from my studies of post-conflict justice to hot conflict. And of course, you know, within a few months, I was even more impatient then than I am now. I would have figured out with you know, the, the leaders and so on. I didn't really, I wasn't very interested in that stage as yet in the local people. I was kind of interested, but not that much. Um, and we would figure it all out and have great processes for post-conflict justice. And luckily, very, very soon after hitting the ground, and I was originally mandated to cover the Horn of Africa as an advisor for conflict, and then in my second year with Oxfam, it was all of Africa, all the conflicts. So traveling to places like North and South Sudan, Ethiopia, Eritrea, um, etc., um, I very quickly realized that I was there to listen and learn and get very quiet. Um, and when I did that, I actually, you know, the, the thing which was sticking in my mind, say, which was saying, there's something missing. There's something we're not getting at with all these big meetings with political leaders and, you know, diplomats, we're not getting at. And then little by little, it became so clear to me. And it was in June of 2000, when I literally had a cast, you know, kind of, I felt like I was sleeping under something like that, under my mosquito net in Somaliland, when I realized it's art, stupid. That's what was missing. And it was the kinds of things which could do what all my three friends have been sharing so powerfully, which we as, you know, however rabid I was and however well, well documented my books were or how, you know, hard hitting our reports were, they didn't get you to the place where just listening to a poem of a heartbroken mother in Somalia might do. And after that, because I began everywhere I went, to look and listen differently, I began to see different things which we simply don't see otherwise. I began to see not just what was written on the walls, but what the spaces between the words might mean, what the silences between the sounds might mean, what was not being said as much as what was being said. And as Hugo alluded, you know, as time went on, all these extraordinary testimonies started flowing into me in other ways. So I kept doing my policy thing and my academic thing, but in the meanwhile, there was other stuff coming in. So for example, the first time I was asked to come to Afghanistan shortly after the, um, whatever we would want to call the events of 2000 there, 2001, um, I was there in 2003, and there I was thinking, how will all these human stories not just of the people who are very important, the ministers and the, the, the chief justices, but of people who have no name as far as policymakers are concerned. How will all their stories and their suffering and their insights ever make it into my policy report and my recommendations? And as I was wondering this and looking up at the full moon, a novel fell into me which, you know, wrote itself in, in between. Um, and as Hugo was saying, now those testimonies have become 
stories that I share when I'm outside of those places and they become ways in which people can share their stories with each other and build bridges out of them. Uh, today, because we're so many here, and we so much want to dialogue with you about this, I didn't want to share too much of that. I wanted to just focus on two things which are very important to me because one was, in the beginning, the realization I had was it's art. And part of me was thinking celebrity, you know, so if we could get a cheapo to come down after having shot her film or acted on the London stage and she would come and, you know, dance with the Maasai women, wouldn't that make the Maasai warriors change the course of the war? So I was thinking about kind of the tokenistic thing that we used to do very often in Oxfam, getting the star to fly into the famine. We did that a lot in Ethiopia as well. Um, and somehow that would change opinion. But I began to realize that art was an expression of something much deeper. It had a lot to do with culture. It was the way in which cultures which get so stuck and often negatively manipulative during conflict could be revitalized. Uh, so that's one little thing I wanted to share. And of the many, many gorgeous stories and testimonies, there's one which is a woman called Kimam, uh, a Cambodian. It is the 35th, believe it or not, um, anniversary of the end of the Khmer Rouge. So I thought I would share her story. And there's the other theme is, um, I'll come to that in a second, because it's linked to the playfulness that my friends were talking about. So I share with you the story of little Kimon, who was a little darling, and I would have loved to put her picture up there because you would have fallen in love with her just as I did. And she told me her story, which is, I am Kimon. I am 75. I was born in Dake in Cambodia. Our family has pre preserved the heritage of Yeki opera since the time of the Buddha. This is the most popular opera of Cambodia. Peasants are very poor in our country, you know. They don't have many forms of entertainment. So it is our Yeki opera that teaches them our history, our values, and our ways. I started learning Yeki when I was 12. We were 10 brothers and sisters, and we were all part of my father's troupe. We traveled the whole country performing. We were so loved by everyone. My father was the greatest master of Yeki opera ever. Everything changed when they came in the name of progress. They massacred everyone. Everyone in my family, except one sister. When they asked me what my profession was, I didn't tell them I was an artist. I knew what they did with artists. I don't like to talk very much about those years. But we survived, my daughter and I. In all those years, I never sang once. Those years have been difficult. And all the songs and dances I had learned as a child were just locked up in my heart. Then, when I turned 70, Someone came looking for me. This gentleman, well-dressed, and he said, are you Madame uh, Kimon, the maestra of Yeki? I said, yes. He said, would you like to come to our cultural center and teach the youth Yeki opera? Yes. That's what I do now. Look at them, my young children, how well they master the gestures, how well they sing the songs. Oh, I'm happy now. I thought that Yeki would die with me, but now, I can pass it on to the next generation and the next. 
you know, art and culture are very important to promote the country. Art and culture teach us how to be and how to develop as human beings. I know the world is changing here in Cambodia and everywhere, but still, culture is very important. It is culture that preserves us if we preserve it and if we allow it to evolve. Art and culture are constantly creating new forms. We need to find the balance between tradition and modernity. Both are important. Both come from the same source. That was Kimam from Cambodia. And hopefully the next time you go there, you might be fortunate enough to see her and the young children she teaches that include her own granddaughter who has turned to this art form. Do I still have a moment to share one more? It's yes, fun. very good. Just take it straight to Super. And that was what, you know, I began to think about this. I just came back uh, I, over the weekend. I was in Lebanon, and I'll be going back there to meet with Syrian refugees. Well, they don't want to call them refugees, IDPs. There are more than a million of them now, which really strikes me. Lebanon is a country of four million people. So imagine how we would act in Europe. I live in France. If 20 million, you know, Algerians just surged into France overnight, or worse, if 20, if 20 million Germans in 1945 had surged into France, how would we have treated them? And here, no closed borders, nothing of the sort, but I'm going off track. So let me get back to my point, which was what I love about art and culture is how it's not just what happened in Baghdad in 2003, where the museums were sacked and everything, or much, was looted. In many cases, people who know the importance of art and culture have been naughty and have found ways to use trickery and subterfuge to hide and preserve the most important parts of their culture. Um, I found out in Lebanon that, that that is the case. There's actually in Beirut, in the National Museum, a wall that was built under which all the most precious pieces were hidden. And I couldn't go this time, but I'll be going back there in a couple of months uh, to see that and investigate that. But in Afghanistan, for example, it's marvelous what both the National Museum and the National Art Gallery were able to do to preserve some of the most precious pieces. So I share with you very briefly uh, the story of uh, <clears throat> Zada Masoudi, the director of the National Museum of Kabul. And as soon as you come in, he first takes you out to see the plaque outside the museum, which says, a nation stays alive when its culture stays alive. And that is his motto and the motto of all his team. And he says, you could say that we had to lie and cheat to preserve our culture. This is true, but we did it with pride. Myself and all my staff, we were prescient. Already when the Soviets left and the civil war began, we realized we must do something to secure our artifacts. We discussed this between us in top secret, and we made a plan. We packaged the most unique pieces in the museum very carefully. We cataloged each treasure. Then we transported them to, a secret, to three secret locations in the center of the city. We hid them there, and nobody but us knew about them. Every few years, one of us would go and catalog and make an inventory to make sure that it was all there. 
Only when the war ended and we were sure that it was secure, we brought them out. Ah, if you had seen the National Museum then, every window was broken. The walls were filled with bullet holes. This area was in the midst of the war zone. Pigeons had made nests everywhere. Nothing, nothing was left inside. But we had managed to save our most precious relics. And now, one by one, we are repairing the museum. We are restoring our culture, piece by piece. We want to bring this, our history, our culture, our story to every home, to every school, to every heart of every single Afghan woman, man, and child. This culture belongs to all of us. All Afghans must know where we come from and who we are. A nation stays alive when its culture stays alive. I'll stop there so we could have more of a discussion.